Universal as it may seem now, in 2014, access to banking services was still very much limited in several LATAM countries. That realization was what sparked Daniel Vogel's idea of democratizing financial services through the existing but underused infrastructure of mobile phones. With the Bitso app, buying and selling cryptocurrencies became as easy as ordering a pizza. Daniel's founder journey got him into MIT Technology Review's Innovators Under 35 list as one of the youngest CEOs of this generation. Having started in Mexico, Bitso quickly expanded in Latin America. With a $2.2 billion valuation, backed by the likes of Tiger Global and Kazek, Bitso has pledged to invest $270 million to take the Brazilian crypto market by storm. In this episode, you can learn more about skills every founder should pick up, crypto as a vehicle of financial inclusion, the future of blockchain in Latin America. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have this chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So Daniel, when you talk about your history with crypto, you're not shy about saying that you know, had a few failed attempts or a failed attempt at building in this space before starting Bitso. Maybe you could just briefly share what you learned from your first venture. Sure. So prior to Bitso, I actually tried to build a number of different businesses throughout time. But probably the one that you're referring to is I tried to build a company called Swaply with a friend. And what we were trying to do was basically send, replace MoneyGram and Western Union with Bitcoin. This is 2014. And we're going around New York with an ATM on a little dolly machine and, and like a power generator trying to convince people to basically like send money from, from the US to Mexico with Bitcoin. And you know, I think I was very enthusiastic about the technology, but like it was too early on. There was just people were confused about Bitcoin. People still are confused about Bitcoin, but it was more novel then than it was than, than it is today. And there was very little infrastructure. 
So Bitcoin was meaningless for people that received it in Mexico. They couldn't do anything with it. It was just too early on. And so I think that was a little bit of a, of a I had a few lessons there. Um, enthusiasm will take you only so far was one. I think timing is another one. I think we're starting to see a lot of companies build uh, cross-border remittance products today. And there's a lot of infrastructure around the world for crypto And um, it's a much better time to build than it was a few years ago. And then I think that the last thing would be that there's actually a lot of value in thinking how you will actually build out a new paradigm. Uh, again, I think there was just so much enthusiasm at the beginning of like, we, this is just so much better than like, you know, money transmission that this is just going to replace MoneyGram and Western Union. And we just went out there and tried to do it. And I think if we would have like sat down and, and think through the customer journey a little bit more, we would have very quickly realized that it was kind of like a stupid idea for the time. But I don't regret it at all. I mean, it was the fact that we couldn't get that to work was one of the reasons that was so compelling to basically go on and do Bitso because we realized that there were still a lot of bridges and tunnels and infrastructure that needed to get built. And, and I saw Bitso as a place to basically start doing that. Listen, Daniel, the timing question is like the age-old kind of challenge of getting that right. And there's been plenty of businesses that were built that just missed the timing boat and then someone comes in and, and has an opportunity. So it sounds like you're still bullish on using crypto as a way to transfer money and cross-border kind of replacing those remittance companies that have these old rails that are super expensive and quite abusive for the people that are moving money back into Latin America. And you end up landing on Bitso. So I've always been an engineer and I've always really enjoyed learning by doing. You know, I remember, for example, uh, being in, in high school and seeing like a professor do a derivative and he'd be like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But then I go home and I try to do the derivative myself. And I was like, wait, what? Um, and, and the way that you actually got good at doing these problems was just doing a few of them. And then you just kind of became second nature. And I feel like a lot of building at companies like that, like... When you start a company, you have to basically do all the jobs yourself. And I think that gives you an unfair advantage over everybody that joins your company afterwards because you've kind of done the job. And so you know when someone's doing a really good job or is better at that than, than you are. And so I would say that always when I've tried to hire people, I've always tried to figure out what is their ability to learn from experience? Especially, I find like that's very important, especially because we were building or we continue to build this world where we don't really know how the future looks like uh, of this technology and what the future may hold. And I think like there's a lot of value in being able to move fast, make mistakes because you'll invariably make mistakes, but then basically learn from that and then make sure that you continue to doing that rapidly. And I want to surround myself with people that can do that, that can basically have the ability to move quickly, make mistakes and learn from those and sort of continue to reiterate. And I believe that that's a skill that it's been pretty fundamental for me to test when I'm hiring someone. I want to I wanna make sure that these people can learn from both what we've, what has happened to us already as an organization, what we see is happening to others in the industry or to just other companies in, in the history of humanity. I feel like you can learn a lot from that. And people that can translate learnings just help you accelerate because you, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that you 
don't know that you don't know and you're kind of like in a tough spot there. But there's a lot of stuff that you know that you don't know. And that realm of stuff, I feel like being able to learn from somebody else really gets you thinking more clearly and moving more, a lot faster. And, uh, and so I'd say it's been important. I don't know if it's been the most important thing about how we've built the business, but I definitely feel like it's played uh, an important role. So you mentioned this ability to learn on the go and you guys are writing kind of the future of this crypto world, which it's not as clear. It's kind of like early days of the internet in some ways where even the way that it's spoken about is unclear sometimes, or you go back to hear, hearing people talk about the internet in the nineties and it's just like funny how they describe things, right? So how do you kind of prepare yourself for that? And given that it's such a nascent, nascent technology, how do you attract the right people that have kind of the mentality that are really builders and people that are okay with the uncertainty of not knowing the exact path? What do you look for? Uh, maybe as some examples of people when you're in that kind of hiring process in that a team building process? So, you know, no one has studied really crypto. Like there's not a degree in crypto. There's some, some schools offer some classes and there's definitely like a lot of schools that offer classes of, in cryptography, but not in like crypto and blockchain, maybe one or two classes. Um, but so like you, you, in this space, you really have to learn by doing. Like you need to figure out how do you push these, uh, frameworks and these paradigms as far as you can, not only from a technology perspective, but from a product perspective, also from like a you know product market fit perspective, from a customer perspective, from a regulatory perspective. You're sort of like living at, at the edge of, uh, you're, you're like pushing the envelope as far as you, uh, as far as it can go. And so I, I believe that self-learning is probably the most important attribute that people that join Bitso and that work at Bitso basically need to have because the industry just is moving so quickly, right? Like I spend all my day thinking about this, all my, like, this is what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a crypto enthusiast. I'm like, a, I'm an individual that is professionally just working on the crypto space 24-7. And I have no ability to keep up with what's happening. Like every now and then you just go into a bigger rabbit hole somewhere else. And it's and, and, and that's what's fascinating about the industry. But it's also like mentally very challenging because it's very hard to tell apart the signal from the noise. Right. Like there's just so much noise everywhere and it's hard to know what's relevant and what's not. And so I feel like, you know, the ability to be able to play with these paradigms by yourself and learn from it by, by yourself, like just has a tremendous value that no one will be able to give it to you, right? Like w w w there's this concept in crypto that we call the crypto degens. And these are people that are going out and doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the crypto space. And we have a bunch of those uh, in Bitso. And it's so fun, like meeting with these individuals and hearing about the crazy latest things that they're doing. But you won't, the, the same way that like, I wasn't going to understand PICS sitting in Mexico, PICS instant payment uh, system in Brazil. Like you can read all you want about it, but it takes you to be in Brazil to understand the magnitude of this technological advancement. It's sort of like the same thing with crypto. Like you need to sit down and, and, and play with these things and mint an NFT or transfer it or bid on something on a decentralized protocol or whatever like understand really what is the ethos of what's getting built out. And so I feel, I feel like 
self-learning is is the most important uh, you know skill that founders in this space and just people interested in this space um, should should have. I believe that that's probably true outside of crypto as well. I just I just feel like for for the crypto space it's uh, it's doubly as important just because of the speed at which things are moving and the, you know the the requirement to sort of like be able to stay on top. And, uh, and you just can't do that reading reports, uh, news reports, or, or listening to people talk. You actually kind of need to do it to understand the limitations and also the, the, the possibilities that, that sort of abound, you know? Yeah, so if I were to kind of recap that same line of thinking of like, of doing, right? Like you learn by doing, you mentioned like minting an FTT or like you're actually in the process of, of participating in it, right? And then you you're forced to kind of learn it to a deeper degree. One thing is like reading it and then a next step would be like explaining it to someone else and the next step would teaching it. Like there's all these things, kind of different degrees of, of knowledge that you get. And as you said, there's not some kind of point place you can go where, you know, you get a download of all this information. It's changing so fast. Let's talk about Mexico. You mentioned PIX in Brazil, which is really interesting kind of, you know, technology that's really accelerated payments in, in the country. You've mentioned that you'd like to solve Mexico's financial inclusion problem. Walk me through the problem itself and what you believe could be a potential solution. Yeah, so Mexico has close to 130 million people that live in the country. And the, the number of accounts, of bank accounts in the country, like, you know, depending on which study you read, it varies. But used bank accounts, like people who actually are using their bank accounts on a regular basis, people estimate that between 20 and sometimes 40 million uh, accounts. And so what you're talking about is that you have like basically tens of millions of people who just basically don't even have a bank account. And so what does that mean? It means that these people have a hard time um, saving they have access to no financial products. They don't have credit. They don't have the ability to, if, they, if, if you have someone in Mexico who has an idea, they want to do something, like good luck, man, or, or woman, like just good luck. There, there's really like very little facilities for these individuals. And, and obviously like that's, that's getting better over time, but you're still talking about an enormous part of the population that just don't, doesn't have access to financial to basic financial infrastructure. And, um, you know, you look at, there's about $40 billion that go from the U.S. to Mexico every single year in remittances. And the vast majority of that is still cashed out in, uh, in cash. Like people go and physically collect cash. And, uh, and this, is a big, this is a big problem. It's inefficient. It's, handling cash is expensive because securing it, transporting it, Accounting for it is, is difficult. And so companies that have figured out how to do this at scale charge a significant amount of money uh, in order to do that. And, um, and I just feel like there is an enormous opportunity to just bring basic financial infrastructure to the masses. Uh, the same way that we've seen it happen in China, the same way that we've seen it happen in places in Africa, and, and to some extent, um, what we're sort of seeing in Brazil. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the fascinating things around, uh, about companies like Nubank is what, what the numbers, uh, the, the number of accounts that they're sort of like opening up for segments of the population that previously were unbanked, no? And so um, when, I, 
when I think about financial services, though, I see a really big gap, right? Like basic financial infrastructure, just the ability to give people an account is sort of like the most basic thing that I can that I can um, think of. But obviously, the realm of possibilities above that just is, is humongous, right? Allowing people to save, allowing people to get credit, allowing people to earn interest on their savings. Like th th there's a bunch of stuff. And one of the things that's fascinating about financial services is that the richer you are, the bigger the amount of financial products that are available to you. And there's some like crazy stuff, right? Like um, I, I, was I, I, I was explaining to a friend of mine, how is it that, um, you know, Elon Musk basically survives? Because he went on Twitter and said, you know, I've never sold uh, Tesla stock and I only get paid in stock. And so like, and he's like, but wait, how does like, how does like Elon Musk actually survive if, if, if everything's sort of in stock that he's never sold? It's like, well, because like very rich people um, get the ability to basically have like massive amounts of financial products that are catered to them. And so the gap is just humongous. And I think one of the things that crypto, that I find very compelling about crypto is this concept of sort of egalitarian financial services, where you can build financial infrastructure and financial products that are available to anyone. Like, it doesn't matter if you have $100 or if you have, you know, $100 billion, you can basically utilize this infrastructure in the same way. It's called egalitarian because, you know, people talk about egalitarian goods like an iPhone. You know, I'm not a billionaire, but I use the same iPhone, the same the, the, the same product that like an Elon Musk uses, who is, you know, a, 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 a billionaire. And so, like, I get I get really excited about this concept of crypto being able to build infrastructure that is able to be relevant for anyone and where you get really compelling financial services that are available to anyone at any scale. And we have a long ways to go. But when I think specifically about Mexico, I feel like, you know, Mexico is getting quickly digitized. Access to, to mobile telephony is increasing in the country very quickly. Um, penetration of smartphones has, you know, grown very substantially over the last decade, well, over the last five years. And, um, and you're sort of at a point where I feel like we can get people to leapfrog. And we're definitely seeing fintechs who are doing this, ourselves included. We've opened accounts for customers that have never been banked before and are receiving remittances on, the, on those Bitso accounts. But, um, but it's, 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 not the, it's not the norm of our customers. Like uh, we, we still haven't been able to sort of like penetrate really the people who are um, who still have a very big digital divide. But I feel like that digital divide is slowly fading away as technology becomes cheaper, as, as, it, as products become easier to use, and, um, and as companies get bigger and can basically attract uh, a wider set of customers. And so um, I believe that the solution, that the solution to financial inclusion in, in a place like Mexico is going to definitely be mobile-driven, um, techn fully technology driven. I feel like um, we still need to bridge that gap between physical cash and digital cash, but I, I feel like that's going to happen over the next, you know, five years or so. And I believe that as as all these 
a component sort of continue to work together to solve this, this issue, we're going to be in a situation where people are going to be able to then get significant uh, financial products and services that are going to be get built on top of this crypto technology, cater to them, regardless of whether you are like, you know, a Carlos Slim and, and you're worth, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, or you are, uh, you know, um, an, an individual who is just getting started and wants to start saving 10, 20, 30 dollars in their account. I love that. There's something I've been thinking about as we're talking. I feel like there's different stages of understanding of crypto. Like if I think about my, I went through the early, like, I don't get it. Wences Casares is talking about Bitcoin back in the day. And I'm like, Wences is super smart. This probably is something, but I don't really understand it. And then buying my first little chunk of Bitcoin and then kind of like thinking through different scenarios and understanding that having lived in Argentina and understanding that like the currency situation and I think all these things contributed to a better understanding. If you talk to people that are deep in crypto, it's almost like religion or CrossFit, right? Like they just like love to talk about it all the time. They're super passionate about it. What do you think the one thing that kind of gets people over the edge where they like the aha moment for people where they're like, oh, this changes the game. Like this is What's the one thing that you've seen where people have gone from like skeptics to believers or accepting that this is like a, an inevitable reality uh, for this next generation? Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about this in, in, at BitSome. And we've seen various different things that allow people to sort of like tip over. Um, one thing is like once people start understanding, like really getting a deep understanding of how the financial system works or how money works, like you just see how money is constructed on a, a, a bunch, like it's just a bunch of constructs put together that people decided and uh, and it breaks down very quickly. Like it's, I, I always tell people that my own journey, like you know, on, in high school, I read all these like books, like Fahrenheit 451, or uh, you know, Brave New World, or uh, 1984, and and all of these books have this the same thing in common, which is that the uh, the hero of the story or the protagonist of the story w- suddenly realizes that things don't necessarily uh, are the way that it's been portrayed to them that they should be, and it's like this aha moment or this moment of revelation, this moment of like, holy smokes, like, whoa, there's, there's a, there's the curtain just fell and I'm just starting to, to, to see the world for the first time as it really is. And, and I really had like that moment myself when I started to just learn how money works and who decides and how do we decide, how do we decide how much money there's in circulation and who does that money go to? And you suddenly start feeling like very insignificant very quickly because this is a concept that you grow up with. You know, you, you like basically for, for, for the first 25 years of my life, money was this thing that like I was going to work really hard, study really hard, surround myself by very smart people because I wanted to make money. And, um, and then you start sort of like realizing that, 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 that money is just this construct and it's, it's, it's very fragile actually. Um, so, but, and, and so I think like during, during the first sort of stages of crypto, like I would say 2010 to maybe 2016, 17, that was sort of what seemed to be tipping people over. I feel like then you go through these phases 
where the actual appreciation of the currency is an enormous motivator for people to learn more and to be more curious and to want to understand the, 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 the implications. And so like the appreciation of these assets has, has definitely helped a bunch of people get over the edge. I mean, you know, it's hard. You have your investments and then you have this thing that's basically like doubling in value very quickly. And, and people just look at that line item in their portfolio again, right? They're like, okay, well, I, I bought a Bitcoin because I heard someone very smart talk about it decided I'd buy a little bit. Now suddenly it's worth a bunch more. Now I'm thinking I should have invested more. Do I really want to invest more or do I want to really understand this more? And so I, we've like, price has been a significant driver in getting people over the hump. But I, but I really feel like ultimately the thing that I believe is very powerful about this technology is that for the very first time in the history of humanity, you get the ability to own a piece of the protocol, own a piece of the service or product. And I feel like that's very fundamentally different. And when people start feeling like owners or part of something, they just naturally get a lot more curious about it. And so like, you know, one of the most recent stories is this crazy story about the Constitution DAO. There's this you know, old uh, U.S. Uh, constitution that was going up for for uh, for auction, and this group of people got together and tried to like win that auction. And like, if you read this story from a side, it just looks like a bunch of crazy people on the internet got together and tried to buy the constitution. And it's all weird. But the part that I think people are not understanding is that, for, like, for the like, as human beings, we want belonging. We we yearn for that, and it's just sort of like very unique that that now you get the chance to like own pieces in protocols, in organizations, in products and services uh, as you add value to them, as you bring value to them. And, and, and I think like as people start seeing this and realizing this, it's getting a bunch of people into the space. Like the latest being obviously like artists and NFTs, right? Like a bunch of people are starting to go into the space because they suddenly can own part of the protocol or part of the service that's actually powering the infrastructure for them to communicate, sell, publish, uh, transfer, et cetera, et cetera. And that had never happened before. Like if you think about sort of, you know, examples like YouTube or, or Spotify, like builders and creators, um, like, kind of like captured very little value. The people who were capturing most of the value were companies like Google and, you know, the, the shareholders of Google or the shareholders of Spotify. Now you're in this world where like the people who are actively building out the value in these networks by providing content, by, you know, by programming stuff, by adding functionality, etc. These are individuals that are at the same time capturing value from, from their contributions. And, and this is fundamentally different. And I think like, you know, if, if I think of, you know, the, the constructs of money as one of the things that got people into crypto early on, the appreciation in prices, which started to like be like overcome the barrier that most people had to spend more time thinking about the space. But now I think like we're in this sort of, sort of third phase of ownership. And I think like protocol ownership is very unique, very important, very powerful, and, and very literally, like very poorly understood still. 
But most of the growth that I'm seeing in crypto is in this, in this little piece. Uh, most of the growth that I'm seeing in crypto today is in this little last piece where you're getting a lot of mindshare uh, from very, very smart people who want to spend their time building out stuff because they know that they'll be able to capture value if they do a good job. And that's very unique and powerful. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you mentioned DAOs. And just for the audience, DAOs means decentralized autonomous organizations. So it's kind of typically everything has been centrally owned and, and managed by an entity. And it's the it's the evolution of, of having many owners and many contributors to an organization. And I've, I recently started reading more about DAOs and the, the whole constitution thing obviously got my attention. And I read a little bit about that as well. And yeah, I'm going to ask you a question. This is just kind of open sourcing our uh, roadmap a little bit. But like we recently, I put a tweet out the other day, a couple months ago, and like one of the fellows Latitude kind of took it and ran with it, which was why isn't there a product hunt for Latin America? And then he went and just built like a no-code product and we now have like thousands of users. And But like that's a perfect example of something that like, I don't need to own that. It's something that serves the community. There's a bunch of product people and engineering people that would probably geek out on building that, how would you turn the product hunt, we call it Latitude Launch, if you were me, how would you turn that into a DAO where it's decentralized and you kind of incentivize the contributors to the, the platform in a way that, they, that you tokenize it and they have ownership over it, like real economic value uh, for their contributions? What would you do yeah. if you were me? Would, and was, is that a good use case for maybe a DAO? Absolutely. Um, so, so the thing that I think is the most interesting about sort of this whole web 3.0 stuff and the thing that i ultimately feel like it's the the, the the powerful thing is that you 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 get the ability to create these tokens that orchestrate how these uh, you know ecosystems to call it something basically work you know like you create these incentive mechanisms governed by these tokens and so I don't know what is the, like, I, I haven't tried Latitude Launch, and so I'll have to go dig in and give you, give you some ideas. But, like, I'll just, I'll just tell you a few things that come to mind. Like, I would assume that over the next few years, you're going to start getting a ton of, like, interesting uh, crypto products that are going to get built in LATAM. There already are a bunch of them. Like, we already have amazing crypto products uh, core functionality in crypto that's coming out of LATAM. And most of these have a token that's basically helping orchestrate the incentives uh, and manage these ecosystems or communities. And so, like, I wonder if with Latitude Launch, you could create a, a mechanism where there's token transfers. Uh, and basically, like, you know, if, if, people, are, if people that want to go into to Latitude Launch are getting significant exposure, the products are getting significant exposure through this, like they could potentially like, you could potentially get the DAO to own a little piece of their protocol because it's helped, you know, the product sort of like come into the visibility of many people. And, and you can in return give some of the DAO pieces to these people that are helping, you know, um, Latitude launch become more successful. So it's sort of like this symbiotic relationship. And you could basically, you, you would start, you, you could imagine that you would start forming like a treasury of tokens of all of these products that are coming out of Latin America. That will hopefully like accrue a bunch of value. And then the creators that help you, like, you know, help bring all this traffic, all these ideas, all this content over the Latitude launch 
would hold tokens that could used as governance for how do we continue to build out this ecosystem. I don't know if that could be in the form of like a fund, no? Like imagine these tokens appreciate a ton of value. You could imagine that all these founders of all these products, or maybe they're not even founders, maybe they're just like contributors to decentralize to other DAOs, um, get the ability to sort of like vote on how that treasury gets deployed over time. I feel like there's a, like, we, we need to think, we need to sit down and think about it. I feel like we're, we, I could spend the whole, you know, next hour talking to you about a potential way to make this work. But, um, but I definitely feel like you could definitely create a super interesting mechanism to reward people um, that are utilizing a latitude launch and where you could also benefit from the success of these in, in individuals in a symbiotic way that it's, you know, it's value accretive for everyone. Yeah, the symbiotic relationship aspect is so fascinating because if you think of the Web 2.0 and you think of these old embedded systems, like, I mean, like take Facebook as an example, you're hooked on Facebook, you're using it, you are the product, you've got all the content, and you're, you know, you're contributing all this value by uploading pictures and writing things. And the reality is you, you're just monetized. And so in, in the, new, the new way of things in the Web 3.0 era, we're looking at an opportunity where contributors to ecosystems, communities have an ability to have upside for the work that they're putting in. Even if it's not work, but it's participation or it's, it's helping grow it. And to me, the alignment of interest is so much stronger, right? Like, like you're designed to just make it great and, and serve you and not like kind of strip value from you as a user. And so to me, I think that's the fundamental difference of this new era. And I think that when people start realizing that, it kind of clicks for them. And then the crypto aspect, it seems like it's just a mechanism for that, right? It's like the, it's the opportunity to facilitate that. It's the, it's the rails for that, right? Is that kind of a good way to understand it? A hundred percent. I mean, I think you, you said it beautifully. The, the crypto rails are a way to make this happen, um, to orchestrate it. And the value creation and value capture pieces, I think, are going to be the, the fundamental drivers of change into the Web 3.0 era. Um, and why people will ultimately sort of abandon all of these current platforms. The reality is that we have a long ways to go. Like, if you try to still participate in Web 3.0 today, it's pretty difficult, right? Like setting up a, a, a MetaMask wallet and you get these words and you don't know what they really mean and you have to like transfer funds. It's like, it's still like the, the usability of Web 3.0 is still pretty pretty bad, but um, but that's just gonna get better. Like two years ago, it was a disaster. Today, it's pretty bad. Like, and, and, and like, I'm guessing that in a year, it's going to be bad. And then in five years, it's gonna be pretty okay. And then like, just, just I love telling people the story of like, when my dad added like connected internet at home and going on the internet was like a thing that you would do. It was like you would go to a specific room in your in your home. You would unplug the cell, the, the telephone line. You would scream to your mom and ask her not to pick up the landline because if she did, it'll break you up. It'll disconnect you. You'd turn on a computer because it wasn't always on. You would put in a password. It would make this noise, and then you would connect it to the internet. We no longer think of the internet as a process that uh, as something you do. It's just a, a thing that's permanently connected to us. It's not. It's it's. You know, I don't even, my, I have a one and a, a one, almost two year old son. 
And like, I don't, I don't think he under, he, he like the internet is just, it's like, it's like white. It's like, it's just a thing that comes with the world today. And, 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 and that required a lot of people working and improving that, you know, that version of the world that I described and where we are today. And, and, and we have as many people working on making crypto be as seamless as possible. We have a long ways to go, but it's going to get there. Agreed. It's early days, so it's kind of like the processing everything and understanding it is challenging. Now, let me ask you about uh, something that we care about a lot at Latitude, and, and I know that based on your follow you on Twitter, and I've seen you do some threads about Bitso's mess-ups in a, in a really raw and honest way, and you know, it seems like that's one of your core values. And at Latitude, we, you know, we have like open all hands where we like, you know, talk about like our company roadmap and share that with everybody just because we think execution is everything. Why is transparency so important to you? Yeah, so, so transparency is a core value of, of, of myself and also of the organization. And, and I think the reason why I've gone on Twitter um, and, and, and <laughs> as you call them, mess-ups, I've, I've sort of like very openly talked about them. It's because I, like, I feel like this entire technology is sort of like built on the premise of more transparency. This, it's, it's, it's built on the premise of um, more openness and more freedom, but, more, but, but a lot more transparency. Like every transaction on the blockchain is visible to everyone and anyone. And, and, and I think there's a lot of value in that. And, you know, when, when we started the company, a lot of people asked me, like, how are you going to get people to trust you? Like, forget about Bitcoin and all these things. Like, how are people going to trust you as a company? Like, why would people go to Bitso? And, um, and I thought really hard about the nights, like, we should be transparent. Like, we should be transparent with people. We should, people should know. And, like, um, early versions of our website had my, my pay, my, face on it and co-founders and the team and we would be super transparent and we would hold meetups and I'd go and I'd like stand there and people would, you know, hey, like I have this issue on the platform or whatnot, but I was, we were there. We're trying to like explain to people what we're trying to do, the issues that we had as an organization and how we're trying and that really got us a lot of people to trust us. People would just say like, these are good folks. They're trying to do things correctly. And um and, and we've carried that value with us ever since. And so now that we're a large, larger company and it's sometimes more difficult to sort of like get that, you know, closeness with the, with the community through like meetups or whatever, we've tried to set up like Telegram channels. We have a Discord channel. Like we try to like make sure that the community has the ability to come close if they want. But what we realized is that a lot of our customers still don't use these channels. Like, you know, we have, we have 4 million customers uh, in the platform and these channels probably have, if I had to guess, a couple hundred thousand uh, customers. And so we realized that there was a big customer base that we weren't getting, that we weren't at, like getting to. And we have something called status.bitso.com where you can go and you can see the status of the, of the service and we, may, we provide updates there when something's wrong. But sometimes it's just like, you, you know, you, you don't have a great outlet to do that. And so we decided to, or I decided to take things to Twitter um, just to sort of like continue to give that transparency. And so, and, and sorry, I, I just realized I didn't answer your question. The reason why I think transparency is so important is because I feel like transparency is a fundamental thing that builds trust and accountability. 
And, um, and, and I believe in that both of those things are really important in building a business. And, and, and so we've tried to err on the side of transparency. We try to tell our folks absolutely everything that's happening within Bitso. We like basically the only things that we don't share with the entire team are things that if we were to share could compromise our ability to like closing a deal or et cetera. But, but even then we're like transparent with the company that there are things that we're not talking to them about. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think transparency is a super, super important value. I've been debating an idea of publicly stating your roadmap as a company and just being very open about it. And my thesis is that one, execution is more valuable than in anything. Two, you might be giving away or forecasting what you're doing, but the upside of attracting the right people, if you have a very bold mission, should outweigh the tell or the information you're giving about what your roadmap looks like, because it's very difficult to just like copy someone, even when they say what they're going to do, because it's your vision and like you can't, it's hard to import someone else's vision of the world. What are your thoughts about that? And would you ever consider publicly sharing with your whole community of customers and future customers or employees, what your roadmap is over the next year? Yeah, it's a great question. To take it even further, we have folks within Bitso that believe that we should be building, that Bitso should just turn into a DAO and that it should just be fully transparent and that we should give ownership to you know, current shareholders and, and whatnot, but also to, to the community of users and to give them the ability to sort of like vote on roadmap, road, you know, what do we list, what, how do we think about this, how do we think about that. Um, we've taken, so in, in our regular journey as an organization, we've also taken a lot of steps to make sure that the roadmap is visible internally. And so today we use a platform um, that where people basically put their objectives and the key results that they're going after, and they're all visible within the organization. We've debated taking this public, and I fully agree with you with the benefits of potentially taking things public. It'll attract talent. I think it'll motivate people. It'll give accountability, and execution is like worth everything. Execution is everything, right? Like ideas setting down a roadmap of what you're going to do. Anyone can do that. The companies that really set themselves apart are the companies that get, get good at executing. One of the reasons why I've shied away from that is because my thinking around the crypto space evolves pretty rapidly and we end up adjusting um, our strategy in terms of what our roadmap is um, pretty pretty consistently. Um, I would say that like, you know, at least once a quarter, we look at all the initiatives that we're after and we try to adjust based on what we've learned from the initiatives that we've pushed out and from what we're seeing uh, from the market and the industry, competitors, etc. What I, what I do think, and, 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 and I actually like right before hopping onto this podcast, what I do think is very compelling is sort of like the Elon Musk master plan, you know, when, when he sort of like outlined what he wanted to do. And I feel like I do have a master plan of what I would like to do with Bitso. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I was actually just writing notes 
Because I think I would love to make that public and and make that just be visible. And it it wouldn't be like a very detailed roadmap of, you know, features that we're trying to release by X date or like a token that we want to list or whatnot. But like, but yes, a very clear vision of how I am thinking of the world. Why does Bitso exist? And, um, and, and, And really, what are we trying to do as an organization to drive that vision of the world forward. And I feel like that'll give us a little bit of what you were asking for in terms of sort of like clarity, accountability, making it be a tool for attracting amazing talent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's, but it's, but, but I don't, I don't think I can give, I would be at least today feel very comfortable with a very detailed roadmap, just given how much our thinking is changing just based on like even the products that we put out there, right? Like we just put up a new UI for our apps and we're starting to see that our customers absolutely love it. And so we've prioritized a bunch of work around the UI of our apps uh, over other stuff, just because we saw how well our customers reacted to it. And we're like, we need to listen to that. We need to listen to, um, you know, things that we had yeah, just things that we hadn't appreciated how important they were when we last put together our, our roadmap. You know? I, I like the idea of sharing the master plan at least because that kind of is usually reserved for like an investor or like, but why not for recruiting purposes, for getting PR, customers, like all those things, you know, people can get excited about it. I do question the idea of having a DAO because you kind of have then the pain of a publicly traded company without needing to, right? Like the, uh, we have a lot of opinions and I think that it feels idealistic still. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm still caught in Web, web 2.0. I don't know. But I, I also went through the same thought process as a CEO. And uh, that seems like you'd have too many uh, cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely. I said we have some folks that been to that thing that we should be turning into a DAO. And I, I think like listening to the reasons why is compelling. Um, but I would agree with you that it feels early on and not the right move, um, at least initially. But perhaps there's some really interesting in-between way um, to to give voice to more to your customers and to and, and also perhaps a little bit of even ownership. So um, we're, we're we're playing with that and many other ideas. Yeah, I love the idea of like crowdfunding in general because look at what David Velas did on Newbank. He's got a place where you can buy a share, in, you know, in the app when they go public, like, I mean, it's just brilliant, right? Because then you create a bunch of owners, right? And we all know as founders, those early people that join your team, they're owners. They have an owner mentality, they're entrepreneurial, like, and that's the kind of thing that, that shouldn't stop, right? Just because you become a large, you're a unicorn today. You're not gonna stop fomenting an entrepreneurial energy inside your company because that's what got you to where you are today. And that's what's gonna probably get you to the next milestone. So how do you keep that going inside an organization as you scale? How many people are you today? So we're close to 600 people. And um, I mean, one of the things that I'm super proud of that we did recently, when, when we started Bitso, I had this very idealistic uh, vision of the world that we should give everyone who joined the organization equity. And then uh, what we found out was that like our, like our employees weren't valuing uh, the equity. And perhaps that's because I did a really bad job at explaining what options were and, and why equity was sort of important. Um, 
And we started to sort of like think really hard about the next stage of the organization and the type of folks that we wanted on board and the type of mechanisms that we wanted to sort of create to keep that entrepreneurial spirit within the company. And one of the things that we actually announced yesterday to the, other, to the entire organization is we, we basically went, uh, went back and we made everyone, uh, we're making everyone shareholders of the, of the organization. So we gave equity to absolutely everyone and, um, and, and every single person that joins BitSol, no matter if you are the most junior individual uh, in the organization, will basically get ownership and we're going to have, and, and we're making a big commitment to explaining to people what, um, what what options mean? What equity means? How things like what is a strike price? What is uh, um, what is vesting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think I think one of the things that we think really hard about is like the path ahead is still very difficult. Um, and if we manage to do that correctly, there should be a significant amount of upside. And we want. Uh, to recognize that the only way in which we're going to be able to make that is through the team. And and, and so we're, we're, I don't know how many companies in LATAM give equity to absolutely everyone. I would assume that we're not the only one, but I, I just don't have visibility. But um, but you have no idea the reaction of the team, like the, the just the excitement all around um, in the organization. And um, and I wish we would have, we, we would have never... Stop doing it, but um, but anyways, better to better to course correct than than not. But I think these are the type of things that, like you know, I I go and I speak to the company every single week. I allow people to ask me any question they want about anything, and I I go out there and and basically answer them. Um, I, there's not enough time to cover all the questions, but we have a mechanism for people to upvote them, etc. So transparency, as we were talking earlier. Um, making everyone an owner in the organization. And we actually have like a, a, a big superpower, which is that it's super really interesting what we're doing as a company. And so I feel like a lot of people at Bitso are like there because they just absolutely love what's happening in the, in the organization, in the space with our customers, etc. And that's like a big superpower. But how do we keep that, you know, um, like as we continue to grow, one of the things that I think a lot about is how do I remove bureaucracy? How do I empower people so that they can blast through obstacles, like internal obstacles better? Um, but how do you do that in a way where, you know, you don't, you don't have a crazy organization where there is no controls, nobody knows what's happening. There's, you know, it's, it's attention. It's forever attention. And, and I think... We need to be really good at, at, at just doing just the right amount of control and just the right amount of craziness to continue to push innovation forward and continue with that entrepreneurial spirit and continue taking risks and continue basically growing the, the enterprise. But it's not easy. And, and like, you know, I heard, I heard Brian Armstrong from Coinbase recently said he spends half of his time thinking like, oh my God, this new crazy startup is going to like... Uh, just eat our lunch, and then you know the next day thinking like, uh, oh my god, like the, the like we're so 
uh, uh, we saw advance from everybody else and pushing really the envelope, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how, like, I heard that. I was like, I feel exactly the same way. Like, on the one hand, you see all these DeFi stuff that's happening and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get fully, like, um, disintermediated here. And, and, and I'm not going to be able to exist. There's, I don't have any reason for being. And then the next day you're like seeing how difficult it is for someone to just like onboard into crypto. And you're like, oh, my God, I, there's just so much an opportunity to continue to build this out and help people and, and, and grow the space, etc. Um, and we need to make sure that more people are a bit so are basically thinking about how do we how do we build a magical experience for our customers and continue to push the crypto industry forward. Well, you've got a lot of equity value now at Bitso. That puts you in an amazing position where it's a lot easier to acquire businesses because your business is very valuable, right? And that's something that I think you guys have done that. You've made some acquisitions, right? Yeah, yeah, we've acquired a few companies. Talk about that real quick as we kind of get close to wrapping up here. How do founders know it's the right time to sell their company? And I'm asking that knowing that you're the acquirer. So... I want to be fair in letting you think about that from the founder's perspective and why did the deals make sense that you did? Yeah, so I, I, it's a really good question. I think it's a very difficult question because I think founders, like, first of all, I feel like there's different types of founders. There are founders that from the get-go start companies because they want to sell them. There are founders that start companies because they have a grandiose vision that they want to drive forward. And along that path, many things can happen. Um, sometimes founders realize that by joining forces with somebody else, they can drive their mission and vision uh, quicker, and that's exciting to them. And so I, I, I would say, like, you know, if at some point you're a founder and you feel like you can really massively, you're very convinced that by joining forces with somebody else, you can basically massively accelerate the the like driving that vision that you had forward and that's exciting to you like that's a really good moment to like consider okay maybe this is a time to like sell um there's there's time for it's just practical reasons like you've you've built a great team you know we, we we've made acquisitions where amazing team the the company just wasn't able to sort of like find great product market fit and, um, and, and, and we found that cultures were aligned. Um, our, our vision, our mission was very exciting uh, to, the, to the team that we were acquiring. And we just had a very practical conversation along the lines of like, you know, it, it seemed like you've, 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 you've tried really hard, you've busted your ass, you, but it, you know, it, it, it unfortunately didn't pan out. But I think I don't want you. I don't want. I don't want to see this fall apart. Like you can at least get the chance to get all these people working, um, uh, you know, for this other company. And sometimes together, sometimes separate. But like we've we've done some acquisitions that they're commonly called like hires like that, and they've been fantastic. Like really fantastic. Um, and I feel like, but but I feel like sometimes. Like I've definitely met founders that have sold companies just because they were burnt out, um, because they just felt like uh, they were ready to move on. And I feel like that's also fair, but I would also encourage founders that are burnt out to think whether there's something else that they could do to get back on the horse. 
Um, I had a really, really difficult time myself from January to April of this year where I was fully burnt out um, for a lot of reasons, some personal, some business, but I was just very burnt out and I was very tired. And, uh, and, and, and our investors like realized that and, and you know, they, they, they made me realize that I was at fault for feeling like that. And, uh, and they helped me a lot in, in getting back on the horse and, 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 and like just feeling great about everything that was happening and restructuring my life. And so founders that are feeling burnt out and feeling like the only way out is to sell their company, like I'd encourage them to seek advice and help from, from people around them. I don't think that, I don't think that's a good reason to sell. Um, and then finally, like the last, the, the last bit that I'd say around acquisitions is that um, we've been very lucky in that the acquisitions that we've done had worked really well. But we've also talk, I've also talked to a lot of founders who've had really hard time acquiring companies because of whatever reason, it like cultures didn't match up. It like um, it was a big clash founders weren't ready to go be um, employees and so they really struggled under a new sort of remit, etc. And so like the big, big piece of advice would be like, make sure that you spend a lot of time understanding as a founder, if you're going to sell your company, both where are you going to end up in and whether that makes sense for you and if not, how are you going to structure a deal that makes sense for you? And then culturally, like I feel like the best founders always care a lot about their people and um, and whether they can really, with good conscience, sell the opportunity to their teams. Um, and and, and, and that, that, that basically my pieces of advice for, for people thinking about selling their companies. I like it. I agree. Those are all critical pieces. Now, for a lot of people... Some would say that you know, reaching unicorn status is kind of like the peak definition of being successful, which I'm not sure I, I share that, that thought process, but that's something that some people define. What's your definition of success in the entrepreneurial space? Yeah, so when, when I started like, down this path of uh, being an entrepreneur, like, I obviously had heard the term unicorn and that was appealing and like, it was you know, kind of like a challenge, like could Bitso be a unicorn ever? But I never really focused too much on that. Like, it, Bitso has never really been about the valuation. And I know that that sounds easy to say once you've reached that status, but I feel, I feel very proud about what we've accomplished so far as an organization, but I am completely unsatisfied with what we've accomplished as an organization, given what I think is going to happen over the next decade. And my definition of success is being able to play an important role in defining how that future looks like. And, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking a bit so like, how, like these concepts of financial freedom and money. And we just talked about egalitarian financial services and access to like tens of millions of people who don't have access to the financial system before. And like, you know, the fluidity of money and payments and blah, 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 and ownership, all these concepts, I find them so fascinating. And it's just a very small amount of people in the world that uh, understand the value proposition of crypto today. And I want that to not be the case. I want there to be, 
you know, but all of my most of my friends who like are customers of Bitso, yeah, it's kind of like neat. They've um, they've invested in these assets and they've appreciated. I think that's one of the le- like most uninteresting things about crypto. And a lot of our roadmap as an organization now that we've figured out how to do on ramps very well is how do we bring a bunch of these products and services to to, to individuals, and um, and I just. I, I would love to think um, that we play we, we stand a really good chance at building a new set of companies. So not not a financial services company, not a tech company, not a fintech company, but really a crypto company. Um, I recently heard Nigel uh, Morris from QED, who you know QED has been an investor in fintech for a really long time, and he went on stage and he said there are no more digital deniers. Like, you know, when we started talking about fintech, people denied that, you know, uh, digital was going to be a thing. And I thought to myself, that's a really neat definition of success. I want to be able to one day stand up like Nigel did and say there are no more crypto deniers in the world. To, today, the world is full of crypto deniers. And I think if, if, if at some point out I, I can do that, I think I'm going to be very, very happy. And that would probably be my definition of success, knowing that I played an important role in making that happen. Well, I love that definition. And if that happens, then I've convinced my, my parents who my dad listened to Warren Buffett, Bitcoin is rat poison. And it's hard to get that out of his head. So you'll be doing me a service as well. So maybe this podcast also illuminates some people that are listening and uh, no, really exciting. We'll all be watching that. And good luck in your expansion to Brazil and your, your time living in Sao Paulo. I'm excited for what you're building. It's definitely something that can democratize access and really make a massive impact long-term uh, in the world. So we'll all be watching and cheering for you. Thank you so much, Ryan. Very nice talking to you. Thank you for having me here and very excited about what we're building in the future. And if any of your listeners are interested, we're hiring. So uh, come over to Bitso and uh, build, build a crypto career in here. There you have it. There you have it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast with Daniel Vogel, CEO and co-founder of Bitso. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.